You are now tuned in in to the December December 26th 26th podcast, podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26er family? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delicia, and this episode features Christine Swanson. Christine is a dreamer, storyteller, and multi-award-winning filmmaker. She has developed, written, and or directed movie projects for such companies as HBO Films, Magnolia Pictures, TV One, and Faith Filmworks, her own independent film company. Now, you might recognize her name as the director behind Lifetime's biggest film in four years, The Clark Sisters, First Ladies of Gospel. Yes, the movie that many of us have been talking about for weeks. Given the film's runaway success, you might say that Christine is having a moment. However, she is by no means an overnight sensation. She holds an MFA in film from NYU's Tisch School of the Arts and has spent roughly 25 years in show business. Needless to say, her journey has not been without challenges and valley experiences. It's hard to summarize our in-depth conversation here, but know this, this is an interview you want to listen to from beginning to end. We get into how Christine's Detroit upbringing and cultural influences manifest in her filmmaking, how taking time off to raise her four children impacted her career, and why she strives for excellence even when mediocrity is the order of the day. This is a good one, fam. So without further ado, please enjoy. Christine, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? Good. Thank you. Thanks for being here with us virtually. Mm -hmm. This is a big day. This is a big day for us. Um, We saw the movie that at this point, I don't even know how many millions of people saw Mm -hmm. a few weeks ago, uh, First Ladies of Gospel, the Clark Sister story. um, And we're blown away. And by we, I mean, DeMarcus, the producer of the show and and I. And we were like, "Mm, this is interesting. Mm -hmm. We need to talk to somebody. Um, And you were so willing to come on and and make an appearance. Um, So we're happy to have you here and happy to delve deeper into your story. I know a lot of people have been talking to you about the movie itself, but I'm interested in Christine Swanson, the person and the legacy and the career that you've been building at this point for well over 20 years. So thank you so much for joining us today. All right, let's jump into it. Who is Christine Swanson? I'm I'm, I'm the daughter of uh, Milton Ashford, who is my father, who raised me uh, and my brother. I had an older brother. And uh, as a single black man, uh, my parents divorced. My mother's Korean and they met in the military when he was based in Korea and they came to America together. But when I was around seven years old, um, she felt compelled to find herself and left me and my brother with my father. So uh, my dad retired from the military. And up until that point, I'd, I'd lived in Korea and I only spoke Korean. Wow. So when I, I came to America at the age of six, I could not speak English. So um, when my mom left at the age of seven, um, as I mentioned, um, Korean was my primary language. And after that, I never spoke Korean again. And uh, my dad retired from the military and moved us, the three of us, to Detroit, Michigan. And I quickly found out once I landed in Detroit that like, oh, I'm not... Korean anymore. And um, that was kind of like my introduction into being Black. Um, It was kind of like trial by fire, so to speak. And in many ways, I had to learn a new language because when I when I was in Detroit, I'm listening to the kids in the neighborhood speak. 
and I don't know what they're saying, you know, and I just learned English. What I realized was this is a whole new dialect. They were speaking slang and embonics, and it took me a while to find my voice. So I would say for two years, I kind of stayed silent and I just observed. So um, part of who Christine Swanson is, is this person who originated uh, from Korea, but who was created in um in the streets of Detroit, raised by her um, wonderful relatives. My grandmother and her sister uh, raised me along with my single black dad. And I have to mention that because I I think single black mothers get a lot of um, love, but um, not so much when it comes to our black men. And I know that my father um, is pretty much the reason why I am who I am today, because I knew growing up, he adored me. Um, so much. And he made sure that um, I had everything I needed and then some. So I lacked for nothing. And and mind you, I grew up very blue collar uh-huh. privilege, but you would not you would not guess that. I, I wouldn't know that I wasn't privileged because um, of everything that he deposited into me. And uh, he made sure that I went to college. I went to the University of Notre Dame and he made sure I graduated debt free. Um, and yeah, and again, we weren't rich or anything, but he was just that guy who saved money under his mattress, you know, and he was like, I want you to go to school and not worry about money. And uh, he just gave me like a great start in life. He's not he's no longer here today. So it's just sad that he can't see like what he has um, created in many ways who, again, I wouldn't be what where I am today without my black dad. And you, you brought up a, a lot of points. Um, that I want to touch on. You answered one of my questions about whether he's here to see what you've created and and the return on his investment, um, for lack of a a better word. But do you remember the conversation that was had with you about your mom leaving? Yeah. See, this is the thing. I, I distinctly remember that conversation because there was no conversation. Mm. And I think that speaks to our culture and our inability to sometimes to have conversations, the hard conversations, right? So when my mom left, the only thing my father told me and my brother was, your mom's not coming back. And that's it. I didn't know why, you know, and I didn't know, well, what's going to happen now? Well, what do we, it, that was the extent of the conversation. So I think, um, unfortunately and unwittingly, my father kind of deposited a weird kind of resilience in me that was wired to make things work no matter how hard the circumstances. And I know that sounds like a great trait to have, but I dare say that a lot of that is rooted in in, in trauma that just hasn't or wasn't um, un, unpacked, so to speak. You know what I mean? So um, today I'm a mother of four children, ages 11 14, 17, and 19. Um, there isn't anything that I don't talk about with my kid. Anything. Like no uh, subject um, is is off, you know, topic. It's it's just from growing up, you know, just not talking about things, no matter how hard I realize that we do ourselves and our children a disservice when we don't have the hard conversations. And so I wasn't wired to have hard conversations, but I don't want them to have to experience that kind of low level trauma that follows you like your whole life, mm-hmm. you know? So, 
and I'm completely jumping ahead, but it's so relevant to um, this conversation, this portion of the conversation. But how do you think that upbringing of the lack of vulnerability, but the care, right? And the the drive that your dad had to push you to succeed and invest in you in every way that he could. How does that inform your storytelling now? Because I see that, right? I saw that in the movie um, where you're displaying this strength through a matriarch, but you know that a lot of her ways of approaching things is probably driven by how she was raised and what she's experienced. So does that, am I correct in that your upbringing feeds how you tell a story as well? Well, um, so I was practically raised by a Maddie Moss Clark. Mm -hmm. So my, my grandmother and her sister, like they were like 60 year old women from Mississippi who, you know, late in their lives had to take on the responsibility of raising children that weren't theirs. Um, They didn't miss a beat. You know what I mean? Like it was like, okay, come on, you with us now. So I, I often say that I have the soul of it old black woman from the South because, because that's, that's what I was around my whole life, my young life. So, uh, it was this story connected for me on so many levels and which is why I really lobbied hard to get it because I felt that there was something that I could bring to the storytelling that has, uh, that is intrinsically tied to who I am as a human being. The fact that I'm from Detroit, the fact that I was raised by these types of matriarchal women, the fact that I was raised in church, all those um, attributes that I possess, I could naturally apply to the storytelling about the Clark sisters. And that's why maybe it feels so seamless, you know, because it's it's not I'm not some old Jewish guy directed a movie about black people. You know, and not to say they can't, I don't, you know, I'm just saying like in this specific instance, um, their story was my story. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the seamless thing that you feel that for me, the way I approached it felt very uh, familiar and um, heart connected. So what you get out of the story, if you feel anything, it's really an extension of my own heart that I've infused into the storytelling. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, Detroit has this, how can I describe it? A bravado, a, a bravado right? A Detroit versus everybody. Uh, I have that secret. Go ahead. Y'all go hard, right? Um, but was there a longing growing up to connect with your Korean culture and that, that side of you? So, um, you know, at a later time I can share with you if you want. I did a short film called Black Korea. Mm-hmm. And it's just like a piercing um, dive into what it means to be um, up from two cultures and to be pulled by separate cultures. So th- this is my take on it where I am today. Um, I, I identify as being culturally Black. Mm-hmm. So that just takes a lot of weight off for me because um, I know a lot of people who are biracial who feel loyal to, you know, feel like this need to be loyal to both cultures, both parents and what have you. And maybe that that may have been the case for me growing up, because remember, like when my mom was in my life, I only spoke Korean. So I particularly identified more with Korean culture. So I thought I was Korean, you know, until I landed on Eight Mile Road in Detroit. <laughs> and I was like, this ain't Kansas anymore, you know, so... Um, once my mom exited my life, there's a there was a whole part of me that kind of shut that part down. 
you know, and we're dealing with trauma and, and like, so it's like, if that person did not want me, then I don't want it. And I don't want what comes with it. Now, I can never stop being half Korean. And there's, I know that that's been deposited in me in a way that comes out. Um, like, um, my favorite food is Asian. Like, I, I love kimchi. Kimchi is a Korean cabbage, like, and rice. Like, it's like, it's, I'm, I'm Korean. Everybody knows, like, you know. But what I love about um, my experience, and I can look at it now as, a, as a, from a loving place, because growing up, it was hard, like, just not having a mother. Um, like, I hated Mother's Day. I know Mother's Day is approaching. And I remember, you know, when you had to go to church, and you have to wear the red carnation or the white carnation. And um, you have to stand with your mother. And like, I'd never had that. And it was like, oh, I hated Mother's Day, you know. But my aunt would be there. Like my 65-year-old aunt would be there. And she was always the proxy for my mom. So there's a deep amount of gratitude that I have for Black people and Black women. Because they did the job that my mother could not. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, um, if you look at the trajectory of my career, a lot of that deals with storytelling about Black women. And the storytelling that I do regarding Black women, to me, comes from a holistic place. However flawed the characters may be, um, my desire always is to reflect back to Black culture and Black women, the the beauty and the, um, the gratitude, like combined together. Um, to me, is what is reflective in my work. And it, it's, it's unashamedly Black. Um, and regarding my Korean culture, um, I feel like there's some work for me to do there, and, and I can do that. Um, but in the space that I am right now, um, creatively and artistically, I, I think there's so much more work to be done as it pertains to storytelling about Black people. And because I had a front row seat into Black culture as initially an outsider. Like I was practically like an immigrant coming to America. And so I had a point of view about Black people that I don't think Black people have about themselves, you know? So remember, I didn't talk for two years. Right. So all I did was observe. And I think that really informed my imagination and my curiosity. Because I was constantly learning, you know, and I think I'm still doing that as an artist. I'm constantly learning and searching for ways to express. Mm-hmm. Um, I just choose to do it through. Um, mind you, I can direct anything and I can direct any people. My heart, though, is is really in, in that space of telling great stories about us, for us and by us. Absolutely. And I think it's important to note, um, this is why emotional vulnerability and doing the work is so important um, because it's okay to give honor where honor is due to the people who have shaped you, but admit I hated Mother's Day. I acknowledge that my mother was not there and this piece of me um, is gone. And I think growing up, if you grew up churched, so not only in Black culture, but churched Black culture, um, we have we, we throw out these platitudes about God won't get put more on you than you can bear. All these things that um, kind of push us towards 
withstanding the fire as opposed to acknowledging how we're getting burned. Amen. So I just commend you for for raising that um, and and being very open about it, because I think a lot of us, we're a huge proponents of therapy on this show, (laughs) particularly for our community. And it's something that we um, promote in that you can be powerful. You can manifest dreams. You can have had an amazing upbringing and have gratitude for that and still sit in the same space and acknowledge the ways in which things felt a bit deficient or, or there was a void. Well, and even, um, and like, this is something that I have to often challenge myself with is that I don't want to romanticize black culture. Mm-hmm. Um, because like I said, uh, I come from it like slightly like, um, as an immigrant, but it's not, I, I don't remember when I wasn't black, you know what I'm saying? But if I were to be, uh, factual, you know, I know like I landed in Detroit when I was eight, you know, and then something shifted in my head and I was like, oh, you ain't Korean no more. You, whatever these people are, you better figure that out. And that's what I went. I've been on that journey. I, I'm still on that journey. You know, like my curiosity is trying to figure things out. But now I use this storytelling platform as a way to kind of explore and to unpack, you know. And um, listen, it's even when making a movie like the Clark sisters, like, you know, there's this ideal of like, oh, all black women, it's all black women made it, you know, black women produced it, black women wrote it, black, blah, 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 blah. so I, uh, what I want to say is, is this, like, um, there are different types of people, you know, and even within our own community, like of black women, um, I feel like um, we all bring different perspectives, but we all are individual people and we're a whole, you know, and like what you said, in terms of um, unpacking, like, vulnerability and trauma as individuals. Um, I think that's such important work that we need to do because what ends up happening is things show up as dysfunction. Yes. Okay. And what ha- what happens is if you done the work or she did the work, but these three people haven't, but yay, we're all black women. Right. Does not mean that dysfunction won't show up and does not mean it won't be ugly. Um, you see that play out within the Clark sisters, you Absolutely. know? They're like masking all kinds of dysfunction and then three, two, one, go, you know, and then there's this performance element of our existence that um, we function in. And I just don't know that that services all of us well um, if we don't look deep within to to really identify and unpack dysfunction in a way that services everyone individually and as a whole. So I I have found myself like questioning things a lot as it pertains to um, groupthink and our community and and culture. And I I love, love unpacking that kind of stuff. Fortunately, I'm a writer and a lot of that um, useful dysfunction and conflict is is um, it informs my my art. It informs my craft, it informs who I am, and it informs my growth. So it's it's always something worth discussing, you know? Um, and like I said, individually, those sisters within the Clark sisters family each had a particular dysfunction or challenge that they had to overcome um, their whole lives, you know? And um, I hope that is part of the takeaway of this movie as well. Not that it's just look at these wonderful women who are like top gospel artists, but look at these human beings who were under the thumb of a very um, tough mother, 
you know, um, in, in a business that uh, they were swimming upstream in, you know, and and how do they manage, you know, and, and we always want to talk about, you know, what the Lord has done, you know, when it's about the victory. Yep. You know, but what's equally valuable is what the Lord is doing when you're in the valley. Mm. And I don't know that we have those discussions as as much because nobody wants to be that vulnerable and nobody wants to admit I was in the valley. Right. I was down and out. I felt alone. Um, you know, I felt isolated and I needed help and nobody came to help me. Like who talk who talks like that? Right. You know? So I think those kind of conversations are so valuable um, because what's what whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not, everybody is going to have valley experiences with an S because you can't grow as a human being unless you're challenged, mm-hmm. unless you're laid flat on your back. You don't know what you're made of. And that's part of the growing process. And I just think in in like these kinds of uh, faith messaging arenas, um, most people only focus on the victory. Right. And I think what's so amazing about the work that you've done is it speaks to that, this idea that we're not a monolith, um, but also how experiences affect us, right? If you even look at the sisters, yeah, and I'm pretty sure none of them can say, I got everything I needed from my mom, right? I'm not sure they would verbalize that, all of that, but how that has affected their lives and the way that they approach things is very different. Uh, so I think that's important too, to how we may respond to something and respond to a valley experience. And some people come out swinging, just talking about the fact that they got the victory and, and achieving, achieving, achieving. Others can get stuck there mm-hmm. or, or they can be triggered by mental health issues that haven't been addressed. There are all these things. And I think as a people, we need to be start to be more honest about that, that you can be spiritual, you can love the Lord and also feel failed yeah. by him um, or alone or like you don't have the answers. And I think it's so hard for people of faith to say sometimes I'm at the bottom and I don't know what to do and I can't hear an answer. I don't know what my next move is. Um, it, it goes against everything that we've been taught about being able to hear the voice of God and having faith of a mustard seed, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's, it's interesting, like for me, like, and, and I've expressed this uh, when I talked to the Clark sisters, like, like, I just, my goal was like, I just did not want to fail them, you know? And for many, many months uh, before the movie even aired, I felt like a failure. Like, really? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Like I felt like I could not do everything that I knew I could do to, to um, make a great movie. Like I, um, and like, sometimes you have limitations when you work with networks, you know, like, you know, you have to hand it off and, and then it comes, you you don't know. You just, I did, I'm going to be honest with you. I did not know what to feel until it aired on April 11th. Wow. So that I'm totally jumping ahead, but you went there. I do want to come back, though, to your education and sort of your career path. But since you brought this up, because we're now seeing what is the the finished product and all of us were clamoring for more and and all of that. Um, But one of my questions was when you got the project and you at what point did you know it was going to be something special? And it sounds like there was some anxiety through the entire process about that. Yeah. Um, I have to say there were two 
instances when I felt like I was doing something special. And I would love to say it's the minute I came on board. Um, no, the minute I came on board, I felt like I was doing an assignment. Mm-hmm. Like I really, I felt like this was a, uh, it felt missional for me, like an act of service. When I look at the Clark sisters and I look at the women who raised me, I honestly, I approached this like, okay, Lord, please let me uh, allow me to use my gifts and talents as as an act of service for the Clark sisters. Seriously, that's all I thought. I wasn't like I nobody nobody thought hit movie. Now, I'm gonna be honest with you. Nobody thought like I didn't. I did not. Like I was like, okay, just let me do a good job so that they will be happy. Okay. Um, the moment that I started to feel like it was something special is when um, once I cast all the singers and they were in the recording studio. And they were laying down their vocals. So we had to lay down the vocals. But when, when they're actually performing, I had them sing live. So we had, then they had to sing back to their vocals as a safety guide. But um, when they were laying those vocals down and we were hearing them, and, we, and, and what I heard was something that was akin to the Clark sisters, if not better. It, I mean, really, you got goosebumps. Like, this might work. Right. <laughs> Like seriously, I was like, oh my gosh, this is beautiful. Right. So that was the first time I just felt like this is something special. Right. The second time was maybe it was it was the first day of shooting. And I was on set with um Anjanu Ellis. And, you know, really like before then we would have some rehearsals. And Anjanu and I did a lot of tweaking work on the script, like with lines and stuff. So I only got like a sense of what her performance would be, you know what I mean? Like, like sometimes actors, they don't go a hundred percent until they're on camera. You know what I mean? So we're just like dancing around things. And that first day we start shooting and she kicks into Maddie Moss Clark mode. I'm looking at this chick and I'm like, here we go. And I knew, I knew something special was happening because of that chick there. Let me tell you. So, and I actually have this in my notes because I wanted to bring it up. I remember when the press releases came out. So all of my friends who were church kids, bona fide music heads, even if they didn't grow up, grow up in church, we were all like, oh my gosh, right? This is happening. Not knowing whether it was going to be great or, you know, whatever, but just excited. And I remember the first clip that dropped with the <laughs> actors in the rehearsal studio with Donald Lawrence. Yeah. And... I, the same thing. It was like the hairs on the back of my neck were standing up. I sent it to everybody. I sent it to my brother. I was like, yo, listen to this. And when I heard the blend and the sound, yeah. I was yes. like, oh, this is not, they're not playing. Like this is, this is about to be the real deal. So that was the first thing. And then when all the clips started coming out in the, the like weeks or days leading up to the, the movie, and it was the clip where Twinkie sold her catalog for this car. And Andre said right. to her, you got the face of a woman, you got the body of a woman, you're yeah. still a child. I was like, yeah. okay, if, if if the other actors just bring it from a vocal perspective, Anjanu's about to carry this whole movie. I know. Let me tell you, um, one of the things that was impressed upon my heart, um, and it was not easy uh, to implement, was like, see, the way that Lifetime does biopics is everybody sings back to overdubs. And so you ha- they hire actors and the actors are lip syncing. And so that's how they plan to do the Clark Sisters movie. Like Donna Lawrence was going to have the Clark Sisters lay down the vocals. And whoever we hired as actors, they were going to lip sync to the Clark Sisters. And like, maybe it could have worked. I don't know. 
but I didn't come for maybe. Right. Right. I came for extraordinary. So I was like, what can we do to make sure that we properly honor the Clark sisters? And like, I'm like, we should hire a lot. We should hire real singers and real singers from the gospel tradition. Because it's not just like you're not just lip syncing songs. You're singing. you're, you're, You're administering ministry. That's how that's how deeply profound um, gospel music is to me. So I knew that we couldn't play with it. We couldn't play with it the way we do other music genres. Right. So that's why I was like, okay, Donald, can I can I cast real singers? And if so, what are the parameters for that? And Donald being the prolific and gracious producer that music producer that he was, he was like, more or less, if that's what you want to do. I'm going to help facilitate that. And this is what you need. So he explained to me like what type of vocal sounds that I need. I needed, he said, I needed three distinct type of voices and um, vocal ability, you know, and then he could take it then and blend it and create the Clark sister sound. I said, cool, let me go, let me go figure that out, you know? And that's how I brought on board Shalea Frazier, who plays Dorinda. And Shalea just happens, happened to be a friend of mine. And we were working on another project together when I got the call for this job and like, I totally just hooked her up because she was my friend. Wow. Now, she's super talented, though, like as a vocalist, like she she is like Whitney Houston level. Like she sings all over the world with um, David Foster, um, Stevie Wonder, et cetera. So she's always been known in the music scene as Shalea, this amazing vocalist. But I was like, Shalea, I'm about to do the Clark Sisters. What what part do you want to play? And she was like, Dorinda. And of course, because she looks just like Dorinda. And then. That's how I cast the first singer. Wow. No joke, because she was my friend. And I'm like, but mind you, again, I I know her vocal abilities, you know? So, and I knew how special she was in that way. And if I know this as, as a friend to her in terms of what her vocal abilities were, I knew I could figure the acting piece out. Mm. What you can't make special is that singing. <laughs> You, you understand? That's like, so no, you cannot. And that's Shalea grew up Seventh-day Adventist and she still plays um, for her church, you know? So she comes from that gospel tradition. So that was my first vocalist. Uh, when I met with Kiera uh, Sheard, Kiera was like, I would like to audition for her small part, you know, maybe Auntie Nisi or something like that. And she's talking, talking, talking. And I'm just looking at her and I'm like, you're going to play your mom. She's like, what? what? No, no, I would. I don't. I don't think I can do that. I said, listen, you look just like your mother. You sound just like your mother. You embody her qualities. That's hard to cast, but you do it naturally, and you can sing your butt off too. Oh, you gonna play your mama, right? So I. So that's. So what I did was I flew to Detroit and I met with Kira and I had Shalea. She was on tour, Christmas tour with Dave Cos. So she had one day off. And I said, okay, meet me in Detroit. So she flew to Detroit. Um, I had Kiera and Shalea uh, sit at a keyboard. I'm like, sing a song. So they sang Looking for a Miracle, right? And uh, I videotaped them singing. And I sent that to the producers. Then they sent that to the network. And everybody at the network was just blown away by what they were feeling. And this is what I was always trying to convey when I said we need to have singers. And they were first like, no, I don't know. I'm like, listen. It's a feeling that we have to properly convey through this music. And it's multidimensional. 
the acting's important, but and, and the um, music is equally important, but the type of music that we're conveying, we have to present it right. So once they saw that clip, it was like the rest is history. Shalaya and Kira were cast. And from that point on, we stopped looking at actors, so that was which is what I'd never I never wanted to look at actors once I decide singers. So once they saw that tape and we cast Shalaya and Kira, it was like, okay, forget that. Nobody else can audition unless they were singers. Now that said, when Raven Goodwin auditioned for um, Denise, she was my first choice when I saw her. And then, you know, I'm a little biased because Raven starred in my um, second feature film when she was 12 years old. So when I saw Raven, I'm like, I want Raven. So remember Donna Lawrence said I needed three voices. Yes. So as long as I had three vocalists, I could cast one or two actresses, right? That said, through um, now that audition process, that's how we found Christina Bell, who plays Twinkie. And she's like a gospel sensation in her own right. And I think she had like a gospel group. She was in like a gospel group. So once, once we found Twinkie, I'm like, that's my three. You see, God works in threes. We know this, like. So those three were the um, foundation for the vocal blend that Donald used to create the Clark sister sound, right? Then we had an added bonus, though. Um, we found Jackie, um, the character Jackie through An- uh, Angela Burchett, who is a Broadway singer who who hails from Detroit, Michigan, and who actually sang in choirs for Maddie Moss Clark. Wow. She was like a vocal sensation in her own right. So we had a bonus and the four of them, as you can, as you know, just created this really through, through the hands of Donna Lawrence, this masterful Clark sister blend that even the Clark sisters, when they first heard it, they were like, oh my goodness, they sound better than us. You know? So I felt like, I felt like when the music was coming together, I'm like, this, this is special. This is special, you know? And then with the added bonus of, um, (laughs) of like an ingenue Ellis. Like, I, I have to be honest with you. Like, I didn't know what she was capable of doing in the way that she did. Like, and it's it's like, it. like, this was the perfect role for her at this time in her life and career. And she had this kind of sensibility. Like, like she's from Mississippi. Right. She still lives in Mississippi. She lives in Mississippi now. Which I'm still blown away by, by the way, but continue. So she has this kind of, direct access to that Southern matriarch, you know, that's still um, real to her, like every day. Like I'm a little removed from Detroit and my relatives who raised me, they're all deceased now, but she, she just has her pulse on that trigger in a way that was so alive and real. I mean, we were on set afraid of her. Mm. Like, like she was like going method on us, you know, just like, is she okay? You know, it was like people were scared, but it just speaks to really her level of precision and professionalism and craft. Like I just, I, I said this in an article, so I can repeat myself, but I, I don't, I don't want to belabor this point because it's neither here nor there. But at a certain point, I thought like we're after working with her for a few days. I'm, I'm looking around like, how is Auntie New Ellis not a household name? Thank you. Like it's just the thought process I had. I'm like, how? Would, I'm sorry. Like, I'm not sorry. She's one of the best actresses working today, black or white. And she's one of the top black actresses, if not the top I have ever seen. I mean, she's up. I mean, like, seriously, like who can follow up that performance in anything? Exactly. And, you know, I knew I knew Anjanu first from the from Ray, 
the, you know, the yeah. thing that's throwing the brick, yeah. right? So I knew her from that, knew her from Quantico. I knew her from When They See Us, right? When she, she got a bunch of buzz hair. But I can't say that before this movie, I was like, yeah, she's a titan of industry. Like she could play anything. I just, those dots didn't connect. Um, and what I, yeah. I find very fascinating about her is, you know, a lot of this business is campaigning as well and the PR and and she seems so far removed from that, right? Um, that's what she needs to do, obviously. But like living in Mississippi, I'm like, how are you Hollywood actor living in Mississippi? Um, but to your point about her embodying this character, as people have been talking to me and everybody's been texting, who are you interviewing? You got to interview somebody, you know, who was involved with this movie. You got to talk to Andre. You got to talk to this person. I said, listen, I'm a bit scared of Anjanou because all, like. Yeah. As you mentioned, she embodied that character. And because she's done some press, right? And she hasn't been as vocal and out there as everybody else who's been involved with the movie. All I really know is what I saw on the screen. And it's the the level of excellence with which she performs and the energy that she brought to the character. It's a bit intimidating. It is. And and it, it can be. But, you know, the real ingenue Ellis is like, um, she's sweet as can be and brilliant brilliant i mean you know she she went to brown university then nyu for graduate acting like she's she's brilliant and she studied and she constantly studies not just acting like everything everything there's not a subject that you can't have with her for which she has this uh intellectual insight um that i mean she's she's brilliant like in her own right you know and you're right. A lot of things in our industry is very hype driven, campaign driven, publicity driven. But every now and then, every now and then, um, you get to see something that is strictly artistic and mind blowing. And when it when it gets past the, you know, the, the barriers of entry and it reaches culture then it has the kind of impact that this movie has had and her performance has had, then you know, like, this is special. Right. This is awesome. And this is unique, you know? Like, like Parasite had that kind of effect, you know? The, the Korean movie, which I just felt it was like God was just, he was, it was God winks everywhere. He's like, we gonna celebrate black Blackness and Koreans, yes. you know? So I've had a very good year in that sense. You know, I was really cheering on for Parasite. But you know what I'm saying? Like every now and then something slips through culture that is not manufactured by industry. And it, it speaks to the, the the heart and DNA of who we are as human beings. And, and it becomes necessary fodder for um, discussion and consumption. And, and then it just um, it, it just pokes the zeitgeist of, of the of the moment, right? Maybe this movie, I see that's for you guys to say, but that's the, the comments that I'm getting. I'm still overwhelmed. I'm still overwhelmed. I'm not even kidding. Like people are just going bananas in a way that, I, again, I didn't anticipate. And again, I didn't know anything until April 11th. And only only because I was following Black Twitter. Oh yeah, they, they go in on Black Twitter. I thought like this is why this is why I love black people. Like they just keep it real. They just keep it real. And once I started to see all these memes happening, I thought, oh, we've we've touched culture. You, you understand in in a very specific and significant way 
you can't manufacture that. You know what I'm saying? You can't. And again, we are in an industry that manufactures entertainment, you know, and I know like I don't go into what I do as entertainment. I swear, I think I'm doing ministry in in my own way, in my own way. Like, I just feel like what I'm doing is so serious and important that like my life is on the line. You, you understand? Like even to the point of like, and I've had these conversations where this is important to have is like maybe as women and maybe black women, like our labor is undervalued. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at what the Clark sisters have done and contributed, like, um, it's like, it's the question that, that Twinkie poses in the song, is my labor in vain? You know? And then when you look at it as, as, um, as we do in our industry, um, look at what we have contributed to something that is hugely successful. If I were to break down the labor that went into creating this piece of work, um, and what it costs me personally, and maybe Anjanou can speak to this too, what it costs her. You know, you have to ask that question, is our labor in vain? Because I wonder in many ways, um, I don't know that the industry is set up to truly value what Black women particularly can and have contributed to the art and entertainment space in terms of um, the value that they get to enjoy in terms of the enormous success of this movie. Somebody's making a, a buttload of money, you know? So I wonder, I wonder, are, um, are, is everyone um, properly compensated and particularly um, the, the, the labor of, of people who put a lot into this to make it what it is, okay? So that's a rhetorical question. I'm gonna leave it as a rhetorical question because I think that's something to be explored across this industry in terms of how women and particularly black women are um, celebrated uh, and compensated. And there are two things I think that touched me in a deep place that was a bit painful to think about. And one from a theatrical and dramatic perspective and one from this, just the business of the industry and having been on the periphery of it as an attorney and and knowing the ins and outs and people that you think have money, not having money, who's really making the money, et cetera. Um, But a lot of the chatter uh, about the movie afterwards that I was having personally and seeing online is people saying, everybody's about to blow up. Christine's mm-hmm. phone's going to be ringing. You know, Anjanou's phone's going to be ringing. This is going to be amazing. And if you know anything about this business for real, for real, mm-hmm. you want that to happen and you pray that it happens. But there are people who have, they have their day, they have their moment. They win an Oscar, they win an Emmy, and then you don't see them again for a long time. And of mm-hmm. course we pray and we have faith that that's not going to be the case here. But the reality of it is, and the sobering um, truth, especially for black women in this business, is that getting a seat at the table is really difficult. Keeping it and, and getting those opportunities that are really profitable, profitable and lucrative from uh, uh, on a consistent basis is not very easy. So, well, and well, here's the thing. Let's let's reframe that conversation about getting a seat at the table. Um, do we want to be at that table? I mean, and have yeah, I don't, but <laughs> well, and has how has that table serviced us historically? Mm-hmm. So, I'm I'm a and, and I don't say this to 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 be overly hyping of a conversation that has often happened, but I'm just wired to create my own table, um, and I have been since I left film school. Like my first film was an independent feature film that I self-financed. I self-distributed. 
And in many ways, like in looking back at my career, I would often wonder, like, did I do it wrong? Because I had an opportunity to do some things with that film that would have catapulted it in an in industry perspective in the right ways. But what I did with that film is I purposely cast people who were unknown to me, who were excellent, who moved me in my heart. And so the level of success it may have achieved, but I think in hindsight was lower had I had bigger names, you understand? But that's how I approached the Clark sisters. Like I have not changed, you know, you understand? Like that same person who took chances on newcomers in this independent film called All About You. And mind you, one of those newcomers was Renee Elise Goldsberry, who went on to win a Tony for playing Angelica Schuyler, the original Angelica Schuyler in Hamilton. So I wasn't off in, in, in casting an enormously talented Black woman. What was off was my timing in the natural, in the spirit. Remember the the valley experiences where you're growing? That's exactly the way it needed to happen. And whoever that person was that cast in that way also showed up on the Clark sisters and, and, and insisted on casting singers and people who have never acted before in a movie. And so I'm wired to take those chances and gambles um, in ways that to me inform my art and how I can, how I can maintain that sense of courage is not sitting at that table. Mm. Everybody who sits at that table is wired to create um, with the table sitting mentality. That's good. It's formulaic. This is, we need this. You need this name. You need this kind of marketing. You need to launch it this way. The Clark sisters, I mean, like everything about is success. And when you unpack it goes against that narrative. First of all, it's a lifetime movie. (laughs) Right. Meaning like the expectations for lifetime are not necessarily high. Like as if you had like a theatrical film with major movie stars in this out of the other. So it's like, it's, I, I look at it like, it's like the Gideon's army. Like the people who sit at the table, they need hundreds of thousands of soldiers right. to attack um, and, and create this massive campaign, right? Gideon's army is, no, you just need like eight people. <laughs> and what happens is when you have to do it the Gideon's army way, guess who, guess who you have to depend on? The father, for sure. Bigger than you. Like, so like, mind you, again, we went into this, nobody thought. Like we about to make this, but nobody thought that. It was really about maintaining. It's, it's like one of the things that Maddie Moss Clark hated was willful, willful mediocrity. So I was kind of walking in her shoes. No, no pun intended. But in, like in her anointing, like we are going to do excellent work or we going to die trying. So that's just my attitude. So we can't be... Focus on what the outcome is. We have to focus on the output today. I say all that to say, if we could create something of this magnitude with a small budget in Canada with a bunch of Canadians who were stellar, you know, Canadian crew, um, newcomers who've never acted, and Anjanu Ellis, who's been working her whole life, but don't nobody know, right. <laughs> like, like she's, she ain't on, she is, well, look, after this movie, everybody's going to be like, I, 
Anjanu Ellis. Like she's a household name, right? Okay. So what's possible? What's possible when when you're not sitting at that table? Like we weren't sitting at no table. It was like, in fact, I got reprimanded because Christine's treating this movie like her own independent film. Mm. Whatever the heck that meant. Christine don't know no different. That same Christine that took chances on casting just extraordinarily talented Black folks who weren't household names, but who had household name level talent. Oh, she was going to do that. But that same Christine shows up on Clark Sisters and says, let's try something different. Mm -hmm. And in taking those chances, I think you get different results. Now, if I were sitting at that table, you're making table sitting decisions. And that's predicated on fear. Yes. And that that was going to be my next point. I understand why people do it. Um, but for you making different choices and not being very conventional in your approach, have there been thoughts in your journey about is this sustainable from a practical perspective as it relates to uh, profitability and being financially stable and in all of those things? And you have a long storied career in this in this business. But have you had those internal conversations? Yes, because I have personally been homeless. Really? Mm-hmm. At what stage of your career? With, with with four kids. Mm. Um, and in those times, in those days, you don't ever stop thinking about choices that you've made. Um, I kind of did a loose autobiographical story about that in a movie that I made called All About Us. It's available on Amazon Prime. So people often want to know my story. I'm like, look at that. Look at that. Okay. Um, it's It gives you a glimpse into some of the challenges that my husband, Michael Swanson, who is my uh He's, he's my man for like the last 30 years. We've been married for 26 years and four children later. Like um, it's, I can't tell you it hasn't been a struggle. And um, for many years before it wasn't. Okay. So, and I would say in the last five years, like we eat well. Okay. And we, we lack for nothing. But before I got to the place of just coming back into the working space, um, I took 15 years off to raise my kids. So there was a time that I wasn't working. And then, you know, I'm looking at my peers and they, they, who never stopped working. And I questioned like, well, did I make a wrong decision? Should I have stayed in the game and pounded the pavement? And maybe I would be at a better and different place, you know? So fast forward to now. And, and again, we can go back to the fact that, yeah, we were actually homeless um, for a season um, in 2008. Remember when the market crashed? Great recession. Uh, Every source of income that we had at that point dried up. Mm. So um, at that point, like we lost our house or we were forced to short sell it. And then um, we lived in North Charlotte, North Carolina for about five years. And we were in Charlotte and my husband and I like looked at each other and we're like, well, one of us has to get a a real job. And um, that's when we decided to move back to Los Angeles. And then... um, you know, things turned around a little bit um, because my husband, um, he actually was able to get a job and he's currently senior vice president of production at NBC Universal. So he's a very successful studio executive in his own right, you know, but that's before then we had our own production company and we primarily worked on that together. But with four kids and like no home, it's just we just had to kind of rethink our strategy and he's been working there like close to 10 years now and and again doing very well in his own right 
But recently he's like, it's, it's time for you to get back in it and do do what you do. And and, th- and that's what I've been working on um, the past few years. And there, there I want to add some additional color here um, because you went to NYU film school, taking awards there, CNN, yeah. most promising yeah. emerging filmmaker since Martin Scorsese, Oliver Stone, Spike Lee, et cetera. So this is like, they basically, you were positioned as if you were the future. And right. you took a decade and a half off to raise your children, which is a noble feat, the hardest job in the world, right? Being a mother. Um, Mm -hmm. So took that time off, but then also the market crashed and experiencing the financial difficulty of that. How do you keep your sanity? When when you've had the the critical acclaim and the praise for your talent that you put on a shelf Mm -hmm. to make this choice, and then now your life doesn't look so great. How do you Christianity yeah. in that season. Um, you know, if I can be candid, um, it it wasn't great. Like it wasn't um easy. And um and I'm knee high in mommy land, you know, it's just diapers and breastfeeding and just you know, all the taking them to the playground and like I, I must you know, in hindsight, I must have been like a zombie mommy because zombie mommy because like I'm pushing my kids in a swing and I'm thinking like, what happened to my life? You know, in many ways. And those days and struggles were real, you know, and I look back a little bit now and one of my greatest regrets, um, really, it doesn't have that much to do with this industry and what I could have been as as a filmmaker, but it's what I should have been as a mother. And, I, you know, I feel like I if if. If I had a crystal ball and God was like, listen, ain't nothing going to happen for the next 15 years. So just be, be in your space and enjoy it. Enjoy it. And I think my biggest regret is like, I just didn't enjoy the times that I had just to be a mom because I was putting this kind of stress on myself on what I wasn't doing as a filmmaker, you know? Um, I got over it eventually, but it was it was not easy. Um, and in those years, I would reach out to colleagues, people who I thought were my friends and ask for help. You know, can you connect me to your agent? Can you make the can you make a call for me? And for whatever reasons. And I think it had to do with uh, it's a spirit thing. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody helped me. Like, no, like when I say nobody, like nobody was like, you know, uh, I know you're talented. I know this. Let me let me make some calls for you. Nobody. And I'm talking about for years. And so I look back now and I, I know like it wasn't supposed to be. Sometimes doors are closed in your life. And this is, listen, I'm almost 50 years old. And this is something I'm just learning. When the doors don't open up, it's not time. And it's not supposed to be. Either you can kind of accept that or you can beat yourself over the head about it, but it's not going to change the circumstances. But when is your time? It, the floodgates will open. And so and you can't do anything about when it's your time and nobody can stop you when it is. So that's it. It was difficult. Mm-hmm. It was difficult for me. But I'm going to tell you something like. And I didn't, I'm not that person who ever planned to have kids like and talked about it. So you have four and you never planned to have kids. 
It's not. It's, I wasn't that chick. I wasn't that chick who was like, oh, I can't wait to get married and have a house full of kids. I the, the only thing I could tell you for sure that I articulated constantly was, I want to be a film director. I want to make movies. I want to, you know, I would talk about that ad nauseum. Not having kids, but I'm gonna tell you something. There's not a one of these kids that I would ever send back. Had I been a little bit more successful, even a little bit more successful, I know just given like the demands and pressures that are on women in our culture and in this industry, I would have stopped at one or two kids. Because mm. maybe that's what I felt I could manage. My four kids, four, all four of them are the greatest blessings that I never knew to ask for, but God knew. And in many ways, each and every one of these kids have, have helped facilitate a level of healing pertaining to my own trauma regarding issues of abandonment. See the, see the human work that needs to be done, like in our lives? Like we want to focus on Christine Swanson, the movie director, you know? But there's so much more to her than that. And so much of it has to do with Christine Swanson, the, the, the growing human being that is coming into her self as she's making movies. And when she can do that, and, and if, if anything, the movie is advertisement, right? It's advertising to you and other, like somebody made this movie. Maybe we can talk to her. Right. And in talking to me, you get more than a movie director. Right. You get some who's a human being who's been on a journey that is relatable for so many people. And now the movie becomes more than just entertainment. It becomes a mechanism for discussion. Absolutely. It becomes a tool for healing. It becomes a lamppost for what's possible only because all these dialogues are being had because of a movie. You see the power in that? Absolutely. Now, what if I didn't go through a journey and did the work and 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 kind of um, pushed or was pushed to become my best self? What if all that didn't take place and all I did was make movies? Right. Then all we got to talk about what is well, oh, when I decided to shoot that scene, it was important to have this kind of lighting. Like, who cares? Like, in the greater scheme of things, you, you know, I care as a as a, a craftswoman, you know, in the moment. But I know, like, what I am and what I have to offer vis a vis storytelling it is greater. And that's the 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 movie is the parable, you know, that that lets us into the lesson. You know, and I think that's why I, I really wanted to talk to you because there are certain nuances there um, that did it for me, like the scene where Dr. Clark goes before the board after they appeared on the, the Grammys. And, you know, she's this towering figure and so powerful and business savvy and all these things. But she's sitting before this this board of men um, and defending her choices. And you see, and it's Anjanou so brilliant as well, when they tell her she can't perform with her daughters anymore. And that pain, it's like a switch went off and that pain. And she said, you're trying to keep me from my girls. And why I love that scene so much is it was a, it shows how much she loved them, even if her, her yeah. methods might have been rough. And I think it reflects so many women and so many matriarchs in our family that we know who may have this tough exterior because of what they've been through, but the undying love of a mother for her children and not wanting anything to separate her from that. So on the one hand, that got me. And also it was very triggering as someone who grew up in the patriarchy of church and 
and, yeah. and, and I know how many women have been hurt by the very people that they served and dedicated their life to. And I was reading a lot of comments online and people who grew up in that were like, I am triggered like <laughs> the entire movie um, because, yeah. you know, it's funny and all the traditions and the things and we joke about some of the things that we experienced growing up. But there is trauma born out of church as well. Yeah. So what it what see, so now we're speaking to like the uh, dangers and the harm of patriarchy and, and especially as it's defined within church culture. And what happens is this. Remember going back to the discussion is of, of what is what is our labor worth? And are we laboring for the rewards that we get on the other side? And is that one, is it fair? But two, is that healthy? Yeah. Is that healthy? Is that healthy for the church? Is that healthy for uh, the individual women? And look at it. Is it healthy for our children? Because what we do is we pass down that trauma to them. You understand? Like the, how they treat us and beat us up. Then we flip it. And then now our kids are, that's why everybody's triggered. Right. So it, it, it's pathological. Absolutely. And and this is, again, this is what to me good storytelling does. It allows us to have those discussions about um, this type of patriarchy, pathology, and psychological dysfunction that is pervasive in our culture, in our churches, and in our lives today. And from and in many ways, like people have walked away from the church because it's something that they just feel like, I don't want to deal with it, and I don't have to. Now, I, I would argue, like, in many ways, though, we are tethered to our experiences growing up. And the fact that people are responding this way to this movie, there's still love there. There's still love for what for what was right and beautiful and lovely that was deposited into our lives, too. We have been taught a level, a, a tradition of faith, you know, for better or for worse. But we are a people of faith who rely on the God that we have been trained to worship, right? But if we if we seek God individually, I think he becomes real to us if you seek him out. If you want to find him, he's there. That was deposited into us in our upbringing. Absolutely. I don't know that I don't personally for me, it wasn't a bad thing because I have gone on my own faith journey and I have come to know God for myself. And that is something that I think is incumbent upon each and every one of us to do, no matter if we were brought up in group think church mentality. You, you understand? Because at the end of the day, um, we were all taught that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We know this, like, it's like, it's, it's, it's who we are as a community. So I dare say, like, uh, in light of all the triggering, it's also pulling us back into the beautiful things that made us one. Absolutely. Right. And for sure, I feel like, you know, as I was reading the comments online, there were public figures I didn't even know grew up Kojic or, you know, because they're so far removed from it. And I'm a firm believer that when people, we've all evolved, I have a similar story. I've been on my own journey. I had to kind of find my own way. But I'm a firm believer that when you speak about church with all its flaws and the politics and whatever, but when you speak with a level of vitriol, about it. That's coming from a place of unresolved pain. And, yes. and I can acknowledge that we all have it. If you grew up in it, you've got something that you, if it didn't happen to you directly, you witnessed something happening to someone else. I'm not right. minimizing right. that pain. 
But when you speak with a level of bitterness about it and vitriol and only criticism there, in my belief, there's some things that you need to unpack there about it. And you have a kind and oftentimes people conflate the two church and God, and it unable to separate yes. the human right. that have built these right. denominations from the God that we serve. And that, that is, imp- you have to be able to do that. If you want to have a healthy relationship with faith, Christianity, spirituality, whatever you want to call it. And church is kind of like a microcosm for our community at large. So the pathology and the patriarchy and the abuse um, if we're going to focus on that, um, let's just say on a, on a larger scale, you can apply that just to our own community in terms of not dealing with and not talking about and not unpacking all of these things that then undergird trauma and pathology that we live through and pass on from generation to generation. Absolutely. You know, so it's I'm all about let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. So if nothing else, I love, again, I love the conversations that are happening that that speak specifically to us. Like it's, it's like, it's us, you know, but the flip side of it is people who are not us also can look at this movie and, and get um, nuggets of truth and some sense of feeling about what this music is and what it meant and what it means and how it, how it um, infuses, like you can't listen to this music and not feel God, in my humble opinion, in my humble. That's why I have a reverence for it. Um, and I had a reverence for it in terms of the way that we approached it in the in the story. Mm-hmm. Time. And like there was one scene where I saw people commenting on it online when uh, at this point, uh, Dr. Maddie Moss Clark is getting ill and Jackie comes to the house and she's asking if she took her medication. And she says, Lord told me I'm healed, you know, with that little shimmy. And people chuckled about that. Like, this is insane. But if you grew up in faith healing, do you know how many people, I, yeah. how many black folks I know who committed sl- slow suicide, for lack of a better term, for, for not following doctor's orders, eating better because we believe that God can heal us. And sometimes we don't, we take the faith and we elevate that, but we don't do what we need to do on, on the earthly realm um, to, to make sure that we're healthy and we can be here as, as long as, as we can. So when that was shown in the film, I, it resonated right. with me. It's my grandmother's story. It, it resonated with me, but also I had so much respect for pulling the curtain back in that way because mm. we don't do that often. Mm. Well, so, like very intentional choices. Yes. Um, yeah. There are speeches. There, I know one speech in particular where Maddie Moss Clark announced that she was healed. She can eat whatever she wants. And, um, you take the nugget of that truth and you can infuse it in a specific way in a scene. And it, it, we understand in totality, like this is what Maddie really thought and this is how she really lived. And what we did not show in the movie was eventually she had to get her leg amputated um, because of the effects of um, diabetes. And um, as you said, that's like the slow suicide or slow death that can occur when we don't follow medical advice because we are standing on some, I don't want to say delusion, you know, because I'm a firm believer that God heals and God can do whatever he wants. But I also believe he heals through doctors. Right. And um, and we all have to be careful about um, spreading poor theology, you know. So I, I love that element, too, of what the story did. It, it That hit home for me 
in a in a major way, having witnessed and experienced something very similar, you know, in, in my upbringing. But I, mm. I like I have complete I'm completely off script. I'm completely off notes here. But this has been such a great um, conversation. But one thing I want to talk about, because I think it's an important thing to discuss, particularly in the time that we're living in um, and that everything is drying up for a lot of people creative for Mm -hmm. sure and a lot of other industries and there's a sense of anxiety and panic about how to survive Um, and you spoke about going through this in 08 and how that affected you and your family so what was your entree back into the business and back into into working I want to make sure we highlight how you made your yeah so you know I think I was back in I was back in LA at that time just minding my own business um, feeding kids doing laundry just mommy mode and I get a call like out of the blue from um, this kind of smaller network based out of D.C. called TV One. And there was a new executive um, who had an idea of turning biblical stories into movies. And I got a call to see if I was interested in directing their first movie that they were going to do. And I honestly, I was like, how'd you get my number? You know, and then I was like, well, why me? Like, why would why do you want to hire me? Right. Seriously, I was I was that far out of the loop that uh, I didn't understand. You know, uh, there are plenty of people to pick who are working, you know, and this is what this particular person said to me. She said, I remember meeting you in 1999 at Sundance. I had a short film that played Sundance called Two Seasons. And um, it was a film that I made while I was in film school. It won so many awards. Um it won the first ever HBO short film competition. And as a result, I got a development deal at HBO. So I started out very promising, right? You started out hard. It's really, it's when I had my first kid, like everything kind of derailed for me because I couldn't do both. It takes a lot out of you, you know? Again, I'm going to stress, I have no regret today. But when I was in it, I was like, woe is me, really. So... She said that she'd met me at Sundance in 1999. And she said, I always, I knew then that I would, I would want to work with you. So she hired me to direct their first movie that, and, and mind you, I was just thrown into the fire because it had been a minute before I, I did anything. So I was, I was like, like, it's not learning because I intuitively knew the craft, but I was getting back into production mode. You know, it was like trial by fire by getting into production mode. Um, to do that movie. And I did that movie and actually I was like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. And then um, they were like, okay, we're going to do another movie and you'll direct that. And I did that. And the second movie that I did there, I was nominated for an image award, you know? So I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm coming back, you know? And then the third movie that I did at that network um, was the Mickey Howard story. Right. So uh, and the way that I did Mickey Howard was like I clicked into Clark sisters mode. Something clicked. By that point, I was a little bit more comfortable, like coming. You know, I got my feet wet. I was back on that saddle again. So now I was like, I'm ready to I'm ready to start swinging. And so there's some things that I did with Mickey Howard that pushed the envelope, (laughs) which I realize now that's what I do, you know, And it's not that I'm pushing the envelope because if I were a male director, I'm not pushing the envelope. I'm walking in my creative space. So I just felt like there was a little bit of pushback because I was doing things that 
didn't cost more money, didn't put the production over, you know, budget and time. So I knew how to work within the framework. It just didn't look like how other directors work because I'm not like other directors, you know? So I was like, no, we have to do this. Anyway, long story short, Mickey Howard became the highest rated movie in the history of that network. In other words, they made a buttload of money off that movie. That's what that means. When the ratings are that high, somebody's making a lot of money. Okay. So I just felt from that point on, like, I just knew there, I could do that. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I could do that. And it took, so that's, that's how I started. I did those three movies and because I pushed so many boundaries and, and like, um, it took a lot to do that movie. That was the last movie that I was hired for at that network. Well, you know, I I just want to raise this. If people haven't seen the Mickey Howard story, this is not, so the Clark Sisters movie is not your first run at putting the curtain back on some church stuff. So I saw the the Mickey Howard story, talk about her mom, the singer in the caravan, and there's a scene in the movie, somebody says, I thought she was in the women. And I like, you know, if you've read if you read uh, the biography on Aretha Franklin, dug mm-hmm. into church culture, there was a lot happening back then. But I stood up, like I like sat up, like oh, they're going there, they're going there in this in this movie. So I think um, what I find so much joy in is you can honor our stories and tell the truth without defaming or degrading. It's a it's a fine line um, or sensationalizing, but I think that's something in your work you have done incredibly well. Um, and I've been excited to see, and there are things that we've even talked about on this show where we're like, do we go there? Right. Is this, is that going, you know, going too far? Um, but it's important to be searingly honest, but you can do it in a really beautiful way. Sure. And I, that is yeah. what your work reflects. Absolutely. At least I, I absolutely tried to, because what's the point? Like to me, like we're, that's what makes us interesting to explore is that we're deeply flawed people who happen to have great talent. Right. Show what that looks like. You know, what what does that look like when it's actually being played out? You know what I mean? So I think people will understand that um, in, in exploring humanity, um, they can see themselves. And it's seeing ourselves that makes us more engaged. You know what I mean? So that's kind of like the goal to me, like, especially when you're doing these biopics is that there's something so relatable, like about like Mickey hair, Mickey uh, Howard and how Tiana Paris plays her. Like Tiana Paris is a younger ingenue Ellis to me, you know, like I'm not even joking. I'm saying like her, her level of talent is like, um, is great. Remember when I went back to why ain't people a household name? Because there's sitting at the table way of casting. And then there's, fearless casting mm-hmm. and not everybody understands the difference. Does that make sense? Like, I don't, I personally am interested in not recycling names that really this people sitting at the table are comfortable with. Instead, let's do what's great for the project. Even if that means new faces, because you know who the star of the, of, of any project is the story. When you make the story, the star, and everybody does their parts, you get the Clark sisters movie. Wow. You get the Mickey Howard story. You get, you get it. You get all about you. I don't, I don't care that it didn't make whatever, whatever. 
It's a classic black movie. Well, let me tell you this. So I was texting with my friends and saying, oh, you know, this is this interview is happening. So I'm doing my usual watching the films and, and what have you. And one of my best friends said, oh, all about you. Classic black movie. One of my favorite movies ever. I, she's like, I remember going to buy the movie or blockbuster or whatever. So there are people, right. even, you know, if it's not necessarily mainstream success within our community right. that feel exactly what you're saying. There are stories that may only be known to us, our cult classics or what have you. But I just wanted to give you that anecdote anecdote because it literally happened in a text message yesterday. It's I have a rabid all about you fan base that are still asking for the sequel. And I'm like, ain't no sequel, but you know, but they are you you understand? Like so it took time to fully understand like, you know, your work has worked. Right. And, and sometimes we're in an industry that tends to value, again, remember, what is the value of our labor? Mm-hmm. And sometimes the lens from which it's valued is looked very narrowly uh, by and upon the people sitting at the table. So getting back to the table, we want to burn that table up so we don't have to feel encumbered to have to sit right. there. We need to build our own tables where we know that there are people who appreciate the all about yous. Mm-hmm. And- Mickey Howard's and the Clark sisters. You understand? Like if I weren't that type of filmmaker and I was sitting at that table, I wouldn't be creating the kind of work that is, is searing to an audience of people that um, deserve this quality of storytelling. An audience of people that I have made a commitment to serve. The minute I stepped into film school, that was my goal was to make stories for and by us that reflect the community of Blackness that I know and that I love and that I appreciate and that I have this kind of eternal gratitude for raising me. Mm-hmm. And you, there's a level of protection that comes with that, I realized, and um, and only in hindsight. You'd only know things in hindsight. Like, why, why did I have to go through that battle and deal with that person? You don't know in the midst of it. But if you once you get away with it or get away from it and have some distance, there's this kind of hindsight revelation that God allows. And that hindsight revelation for me is I had to go the independent route on some level. I had to sit in the valley for years on another level. And I had to slowly come out of it in the way that I have. And it's been it's still been a little bit of a struggle in so many ways, but um it's kind of cemented my my self artistry. Absolutely. You know, I, I want to say this to the people who are um, not normal. Okay, meaning like you never colored inside the line. You were always a little bit different. And um, when you live in a world of conformity, um, you're challenged for being different in yourself. So the, this is this is who I want to speak to in this way. Um, God made you like that for a reason. You may not understand it initially, and it may be painful to not be included with the cool kids. Okay. Um, Some of the most extraordinary artists that ever lived were not part of the cool kids club. Right. And sometimes it's the pain of being excluded, the pain of being ostracized, the pain of being uh, not celebrated ever that pushes you farther and farther into your art in such a way that it makes you totally different and totally stand apart. And that then becomes celebrated, but it's too late because you've suffered for so long. But that I dare say that that suffering is part of the creation of the crafting of who you become as an artist 
and as a person with a singular voice that is uniquely yours. Mm -hmm. Well, here's the thing. Like, this is a theme with your career. Like, you fight and you fight for choices. And then the outcome proves that you made the right choice. Again, I guess the question becomes, when is there a psychological shift around bankability and risk taking? Because I guess my frustration is like for you by proxy is why do you have to fight every time when your choices have been proven to be correct? Because there is a mentality of um, people who sit at that table who understand a certain power structure that. um, And again, I don't know if it has to do with the fact that I'm a woman. Too. And not only like women do it to other women. You understand? I'm not, it's not just men not recognizing and, and applauding my choices and my brilliance, in my humble opinion. Again, I'm not big on like, but I'm just saying like the work speaks for itself. If I were a man and I kept having that kind of, then I think it could be presumed that, oh, we need to support her decisions. So, I think there's a lot of um, pathology that comes with, again, when you approach it from an industry point of view. And I find myself when I'm in those conversations that I, I just, it just doesn't sit well in my stomach. And I, I everything that I do as an artist is, is gut level choice making, you know? Um, and that's the only way that I know how to function. So what I've come to understand is sometimes it's not you that needs to change. It's the circumstances in which you work that needs to change. So that comes from tr- um, trial and error. You, you understand? So sometimes you have to distance yourself from the people who don't understand and recognize your brilliance until after the fact, but before and during um, make life hell for you and create all kinds of unnecessary obstacles to overcome that shouldn't have been there. Well, now that we're on the other side of this, these are people that I can't be associated with, you know, unless there's a paradigm shift in the way that they think and in the way that they um, appreciate and support artists. And so when when you come from the mentality of exploitation, you don't have the wherewithal to be supportive of great art and great artists when it's right in front of you. So there's a business side of doing things and there's a creative side of doing things. I actually have the experience of doing both well. Not everybody does that well. Some people only understand the business side of it. And then what they end up doing is they create product. And it feels like that. And it comes and goes. I've expended a lot of time and energy um, away from my craft and now with my craft in such a way that I understand um, what value that I can bring. And I understand the process in which I work best. And you can only understand that by having done it. You understand? So, so now the paradigm shift is 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 happening for me um, because I no longer have to or am forced to work in those environments. I had to do that initially because that's how I had to come back into the game. I had to do episodic television and I had to do it this way. I had to work under these people, you know, but uh, now that I'm on the other side of it, it's let's just say different conversations are happening. Right. And I think there's a lesson there for our core audience. That sometimes to get back in the door, to get in the door, you may not be starting 
with what is your ideal. But there's a way to do that without completely, and this term is so overused, but completely selling out or, or conforming. You can bring, you can walk in confidence and bring who you are to the table and your integrity, but also be able to function in an environment which may not be your top choice in terms of how you want to present yourself or your craft. Um, what I have discovered in the, the trajectory of my uh, career post mommyhood, like since I've been back is like everywhere I've gone to and everyone I've worked with, like um, I have often been challenged to do the ordinary or do you. And nine times out of 10, when I do me, it unsettles the, uh, the paradigm of the ordinary. But every time I did me and I went the extraordinary route, the end result was extraordinary. And on some level, like people who are used to a certain paradigm, sometimes they don't even care that it's extraordinary because wow. what you've done, what you've done is you've rattled them and you've actually held up a mirror to them so they can see themselves and say, this is what you've always done. And you have accepted mediocrity. Now that we've done something different and here's the extraordinary, you have to make a choice. But in a lot of times they can't make choices because they realize they're not equipped for the extraordinary. That's good. So it's easier to spit out the extraordinary so they can continue in mediocrity because that's what validates them because it's always been working for them. But I come into the mix. I can't do that because I'm not, I don't even know how, I don't even know how to do mediocre. So, you know, it's like, then I have, then it becomes, she's so intense. She's difficult. She's passionate and all those become bad traits. But those same traits you see in that Korean director who did Parasite and it's celebrated. So the understanding that I come away with is extraordinary is always celebrated, but not in the immediate. Mm. So it's something that if, if you find yourself to be different and you march to the beat of a different drummer and um, you do things um, not like others, um, it's not a bad thing. It's just not going to be celebrated in the immediate because the immediate is mired in mediocrity. Wow. that That's a good word. I want to send you an offering on that one. You understand? So you might have to walk this path alone for a while. And for me, it's been for years. And sure. even as I was doing the Clark sister story, I was just, I was just spinning like in, 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 in extraordinary meaning. I just did not do things the normal way. And people who are used to things being done in a normal way, look at that and say, Oh, she's difficult, but they don't. Is the, is the success difficult to accept? Cause you can't have one without the other. Right. You, right. Can't, you can't accept one and not accept what it took to get there. But they don't, those are not the conversations that people want to have. And I realize it's, it's a waste of my time to stick around to have those conversations because I just already proved it to myself. Yeah. And God showed it to me like, no, you're the constant. So, so take it, keep moving. But what you have to realize is you also have to align yourself with other extraordinary people or people who honor that process. Absolutely. And it is incumbent on, upon me to leap out of the ordinary and the mediocre. And there's a cost for that. Mm -hmm. There is a cost for that. One day I may have to write a book about it because if I start talking about it now, I'm going to cry. You, you like, you, you snatched the words out of my mouth. I'm like, this is a book. Well, it's, there was a great cost that I paid mm -hmm. for 
for doing the extraordinary because it was a risk that I took, a, a, an enormous risk that I took on so many levels that I'm not even delving into right now. But you know, as I said earlier, I did not know until April 11th if it worked. Mm-hmm. It, a whole year had passed before I, um, before the movie aired. So the, my friends who are very close to me and my family know, like for a year, I was on pins and needles. So it wasn't don't it wasn't this extraordinary like you did that. You knew you did that. I knew I was functioning in my extraordinary because that's what I know to do. I don't know any different. I did not know if that gamble paid off until black Twitter told me it did. Wow. Black Twitter is better than any uh, Roger Ebert or anybody these days. <laughs> um, wow. I it's, I'm like, I've kept you so much longer than I said I was going to keep you. But this is so, so good. Looking ahead. um, Well, let me say this, because I saw, you know, people who listen to the show often know that I don't like to follow any blueprint of like all the other interviews that have been done. But if I don't ask this question, my listeners might kill me. Um, But one of the big pieces of feedback from the movie was this should have been a miniseries. Like we were all clamoring for more. In any in any world, is it possible for this to be expounded upon in a way that either is a prequel, because I know we're a lot of us are interested in the origin story of Maddie Moss Clark. Right. You don't get to that without coming through hardship before the husband and before those kids. So there's that or somehow exp- expounding upon the story in terms of their solo careers and how their lives have evolved um, after, you know, uh, after where the story ended in the, in the movie. I feel like, um, like a- even after the Mickey Howard story, people wanted more. And that's essentially the feeling that you want to leave people with. Mm-hmm. So by having that kind of enthusiasm for more, it's like we did our jobs. Mm-hmm. You want that. So now, can there be more? Um, I believe as a creative that anything is possible. You know, um, you would need, remember, there's, there are certain ingredients for the extraordinary. So do you want something extraordinary like that again? Then there are certain components that need to, be in it. Okay. Um, that's above my pay grade. Understood. Understood. So setting uh, First Ladies of Gospel, Clark Sisters movie aside, whose story in a perfect world would you want to tell next? Hmm. There's so many stories that I know I can do, but every, every story takes a piece out of me, you know? So one of the things that comes with maturity and wisdom is to choose wisely like what you're going to invest your life into, because that's what I do. Like mm-hmm. people at the table, they make product. I create life. I'm a mother of four. Like I'm a life force. You know, so I joke around with my husband and I, we make, we make movies and we make babies, but there's something to be said about being a, a, a creative life force. And that's how I look at every single project that I do. I put my life into it. Like <laughs> that I had it. Nice conversation with Karen Clark the other day, and she was thanking me for you know everything I, that I did to make this movie work. And I told her, listen, I just didn't want to disappoint you guys, you know. And I told her, you know, and I know I was a little intense. You know, that's how I work. I'm very intense and focused. And she was like, you know what? I know that's how you have to work. She's like, sometimes I get intense when I'm working. She's like, and I know that was necessary for what you needed to do. Um, and I say all that to say is that I deposit so much into what I do that I've started to think through very carefully what it is 
that I'm going to invest my time into. And especially because the time that I'm investing in that is time I'm taking away from my family. Yeah. So it's it's like I have to just think it through in that way and make sure it's, it's worthy of that absence. And mind you, my kids are like, can you go somewhere and make a movie? And like, they're like, we good, we good. Can you just go somewhere? So they're very encouraging of me to leave the house, to do the work that I need to do. But um, that's how I look at it. So I have to feel like there's something that I can deposit into the storytelling that is worthy of my time and energy. So, and I have to feel that there's something that I can contribute. You, you understand? So if I feel like there's something that I can contribute, then that's something that I'm going to invest myself in and go hard. Like I'm like, you go hard or you go home, you know? And so that's kind of like how I approach the projects. That said, I also feel like there, I have projects like, listen, I've been home as a stay-at-home mom, but I've been writing. Mm-hmm. I have like five scripts, I think four, four that I wrote. There's another five, fifth one that I'm attached to to direct that are ready to go today. And that will be extraordinary. Um, um, you know, I always have to top myself. I'm only I'm always in competition with myself. So I'm always like, well, if you like the Clark sisters, wait for the next one, you know? So I'm always thinking about it in that way. What can I do that's better? That's that's even more extraordinary. So I have those projects lined up. So the next one that I'm I'm really passionate about, and you know, I'm really thinking through because. It's it's after doing something that's musically related. I have a film that's actually a musical. Mm. And it's like it's think think like the black La La Land. Really? Now, this sounds interesting. Yeah. With real singers. And the whole premise of it is a love letter to black music. So it's it's written it's ready to go. I'm talking to talent and we're trying to figure out in line of the pandemic, like how it can work but it's so close to my heart and it speaks to like my life experience as an artist and all the lessons that I've learned. I, I, I infused it into the storytelling that is like, um, that's like the whiz meets Moulin Rouge meets, nice. you know? So that's, that's something I'm very passionate about. And I, I just want to do it because it's not a biopic about somebody else who's living. That's its own kind of pressure and stress. So this is just a uniquely uh, story that was crafted by me and that 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 is an extension of what's in my heart, you know, so. As a certified music head, I'm like getting all tingly just just thinking about this movie. Uh, that that sounds exciting. So I, I must say that, like, I knew this was going to be good, but like this was amazing. So many nuggets, so much. The only thing I'm sad about is we do all pre-pandemic, all of our interviews were in person. <laughs> The only thing I'm sad about, we had to do this uh, virtually, but I feel like we've been talking about, uh, we actually had an Atlanta shoot day planned Mm. right before everything blew up. We were supposed to be in Atlanta shooting for a day. LA is on our calendar um, as well to to meet with people out there and do our thing just in other cities. So you got to promise me that that we can have a follow-up in person eventually, hopefully when you're not working, but I feel like you're going to be working a lot. For sure. I would love to see this as like a bigger platform. Like you can give Wendy Williams a run for her money. I appreciate that. And, you know, it's to the point that you were making earlier. I have that we've only been at this for a little over two years now. No, two and a half, two and a half and 117 episodes in. But the experiences I have with my guests, when I I press stop, I'm really excited. And I'm like, this is amazing. Um, But I also have that moment of like, why don't we have a bigger platform, right? Why? Because it's important for us to, as I told you on the phone, to get to the meat and potatoes. We like to delve 
deeply. And one of the things that I do appreciate about the people that we talk to, they may not be household names, but it also means that we don't have to talk to publicists. Like I, I've dealt with maybe four publicists on the show. There's no limit. We, we can just have the conversation without having to abide by certain barriers. So I'm also in the, um, in the thick of, which we talk about with our listeners all the time, of just putting out good content and doing what I know I was meant to do and right. knowing that when it it is it, supposed to blow up or whatever it's supposed to do and who it's supposed to reach, that's going to happen. And the content is evergreen. It's always going to be there. We have people every week that contact us and say, I just found found your show because of this guest, but I'm at episode one. And the first first 15 episodes are just me telling my own story. Um, so that's encouraging. And this conversation, let me just say this, as a woman who's 38 and thinking about a family, but wondering how do you do that with these big dreams that you have um, professionally and in media and entertainment. This has been encouraging to me. It, you know, it's very, you were very honest about what it took. It's been encouraging in terms of figuring out my own story and the decisions I need to make and make in the next couple of years <laughs> um, as well. So thank you for being honest about. Can I say my, something about that? Because, yeah. um, listen, you don't know that you can't have kids until you can. And you only regret the children that you don't have. So um, as a person, remember, I only dreamed about making movies and being a director. I never dreamt of um, having a family. I can I can say this for sure. Um, the industry, like for me, it, it, it was always there. It never went anywhere. But I became better at it as a result of having my mommy experience. And there is a crunch period where it's extraordinarily hard. You understand? Like doing both. But this too shall pass. Like these kids don't stay young forever. My kids are like, will you go out there and work? You understand? But that don't forsake that beautiful development process for us. If, if you're afforded that opportunity, because you're looking at what your career would lose. Mm -hmm. Because I promise you like this, everybody's career came to a halt. Very true. So don't put off the things that to me, in the long run, will be meaningful and bring you joy, and 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 force you to become um, greater than you've ever imagined. Okay, so I like to tell women: do not put off motherhood for for your career. But if you choose to do that, mad respect to you as well. Get res- um, get the help that you need. If you can get the support that you need, you can do both. I, I didn't have support, so it was a it was more of a struggle for me than it needed to be. But if you get the support, do not forsake this rich opportunity to 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 do that if that's what you want to do, because the regret that comes later for not having done it and for not having the time now to do it is going to be greater. I promise you. Okay, so I'm walking living testament to what's possible. But I always tell people it was hard. It wasn't easy. I was depressed. I needed therapy. You understand? But I'm on the other side of this and I can speak to what's possible. Okay. But be realistic about it, but do not give up uh, your uh, desire to become a mother because you're thinking about what you will lose in your career. Okay. That is good. Oof, I needed that. And I know a lot of people who listen to this show needed it too, primarily my friends. Um, but where can people find you online? I'm, I'm C Swanson 44 across all platforms. Awesome. So can is there anything in the short term that we can look to see from you 
or are we um, just waiting for this, uh, this, this project right. to come to? Um, not, no, this was it. This was the one thing that I did pre-pandemic, Clark Sisters, that came out during the pandemic. So I'm, I'm putting together some uh, very exciting projects now. Uh, the musical is one of them. Uh, there's another one that uh, we'll, you know, we'll, we're working on and we'll announce that soon. And like, let me just say, like, even with those two projects, my, my plate is full and I have four kids and, and I want to be in their lives and I enjoy being their mother and I, I enjoy spending time with my husband. So um, I want to live life and, and be available as an artist wherever um, I'm called. Now that's, that's a luxury. Let me tell you. Okay. I can do that because now, you know, I don't have to work to eat. Now, there was a time I had to work to eat and you just had to take the projects that came to you. Right. So I did years and years and years of that. So now I'm kind of shaping the career that I always wanted. But that took me 20 years to get to. Wow. So we're waiting. I mean, to, to the listeners, let me just say this. IMDb is your friend. If you don't know the other work um, that Christine has done, she got credits. And they're out there and you can check them out. And your work is on uh, Amazon Prime. They can see, you know, some, some material on there as well. But I have thoroughly, I knew it was going to be good, but I have thoroughly enjoyed this. I, I feel like I learned a lot. I feel encouraged. Um, I feel motivated. I feel excited about where our art is going and yeah. the people who are facilitating that. Um, there's so much talk about what's not happening <laughs> for us and, and all those things. But um, when you have storytellers like you who are are sticking to what they believe in their value system and, and at a cost, but sticking to that for us to have these experiences um, that are frankly, you know, transformative right. um, and telling our stories. And that happened on the 11th. And that's why people keep watching it over and over because of the feeling that it elicits. Um, so I just want to commend you on that. I want to thank you for coming on our little show uh, and speaking to us. Um, it all started from a DM and and you were willing to do that. So I was like, this is a long shot. I don't know, but I'm very grateful um, that you were willing to do that. And keep it up and let me know how I can help because I I, I sense, remember I'm a, um, I, I have a special ability to um, find talent and nine times out of 10, I'm right. So look, there's there's something called a breakfast club that that people do. I'm like I see I see like that like kind of platform and more. So keep keep it up because we we need you too. I appreciate that. And trust me, I've got all kinds of ideas that I, I definitely want your opinion on for sure offline. But to our listeners, if you have enjoyed this episode, I'm talking right to the camera now since we're gonna have video. Like, share, subscribe, tell somebody about it. We are our best, what I call sneezers. Uh, Seth Godin in his book, The Purple Cow, but it's a marketing term. We're the best people to get the message out there. Please share. And if you if you like what you hear, tell somebody about it. Check out Christine online. She's been posting nuggets about her work and the movie and behind the scenes information, which is great. She's at C Swanson 44. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER. 